0: Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Michael Walker, and I'm joined by another Mike, Mike Bancoli. Um I, I, I thought another Mike is more respectful than the other Mike, which is, I think, what I called you last time. More neutral this time.
1: Yeah, I, I can work with that. I like it. The double M combos back back in action. How, how are you liking your new booth? It means we don't
0: have to clean up what's behind you.
1: I like it, actually. Decent li- little setup, you know, something new, some change. Change is always good. Well, not always good, but sometimes it's good. Oh,
0: I like this. We're getting deep now. This is almost spiritual. We'll, we'll see if that's a running thread through, throughout the show. Um, we're going to be talking about whether or not there's a NIMBY tax in Britain, um, a minister dodging some questions in an incredibly embarrassing way, and Keir Starmer making the most of the perks of the job. Um, the man is, there is no freebie he will not accept, apparently. Um, we're beginning, though, um, with the image I am sure you have seen already, Trump's mugshot. Um, do you think Trump getting arrested? Trump, sorry, surrendering himself um, and ending up with this mugshot everywhere um, is a uh, detriment or a boost to his presidential election campaign. Uh, Make sure to let us know your thoughts. You can get in touch using the Super Chats on YouTube or you can tweet us on the hashtag Navarra Live. And we've had some people sort of tweeting in the last couple of days on the Navarra Live hashtag disagreeing with me, which I do enjoy. If you disagree with anything I say, feel free um, to let me know on Twitter. I do like to respond to those as well. This is the first mugshot ever taken of a current or former US President. It was taken by the Sheriff's Office in Fulton County, Georgia after Donald Trump surrendered himself to face his fourth indictment this year. Now this indictment relates to his attempt to overturn his loss in the 2020 presidential election. Trump seems very pleased with the mugshot, almost as if he had been practicing it for a while, and he used the moment to send his first tweet in almost three years. Um, Mugshot, August 24th, 2023, election interference, never surrender. And then a link to DonaldJTrump.com, which I presume is his campaign website. Trump also gave this statement to the media yesterday.
2: really believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election. And I should have every right to do that. As you know, you have many people that you've been watching over the years do the same thing, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Stacey Abrams or many others. When you uh, have that great freedom to challenge, you have to be able to. Otherwise, you're going to have very dishonest elections. What? has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. There's never been anything like it in our country before. This is their way of campaigning. And this is one instance, but you have three other instances. It's election interference.
0: Of course, the difference between Clinton, Abrams and Trump is the former two politicians contested elections by wholly legal means, um, mainly just by talking about it. But I think there might have also been some, some court challenges. There definitely weren't um, attempted insurrections and they weren't caught making any phone calls like this.
2: But they are shredding ballots, in my opinion, based on what I've heard, and they are removing machinery uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can both of which are criminal fines, and you can't let it happen, and you are letting it happen. You know I mean? I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state.
0: So that was the phone call Donald Trump made to the Secretary of State for Georgia um, after the presidential elections in 2020. He wanted um, 11,000 votes or so found um, so that he would win. It seems pretty incriminating to me. So will any of Trump's indictments result in convictions? And if so, will that stop him running for president? Well, on the former, we'll have to wait for the trials to play out. On the latter, though, surprisingly, the answer is no. Trump can stand to be elected president even if he's in jail by the time the elections happen. And there's a precedent for this. In 1920, Socialist Party candidate Eugene Debs got a million votes while in jail. Um, Mike, Donald Trump is pretty happy with the mugshot.
1: Um, Should he be? I mean, it's not quite as good as Britney, so probably not. (laughs) But no, I actually think for, for Trump, he will be quite happy with it. Should he be happy? No, because, as you said, he's the first, you know, serving president or, or former president even to to have a mugshot taken of him. That's not quite the first you'd want to your CV, but then again, this is Donald Trump we're talking about here. And look, I think for Trump, this is all part of his for him, this works well, because, you know, he can frame he's framed himself throughout his time as in politics as this kind of anti-establishment figure who's entering politics to quote unquote make America great again. And I think part of how he's framed this this character and this this personality is an anti-establishment anti establishment figure is you know, by pointing out things, you know, wrongly, of course, things like, you know, the election was rigged and, you know, the system's against us and we are fighting against this bigger system that's against us and against our movement. And I think, you know, for Trump's base, they'll see this mugshot and, you know, the treatment of Trump in the last year or so as further evidence that the system is rigged against them, apparently. Um, and it's like, oh look, you know, they, they're taking, they're they're going after our guy again. You know, the system's rigged, you know. They're trying to squash our movement. So I actually think for Trump's base, this will kind of invigorate them. I think, and we have to remember, Trump has like a vice-like grip over the Republican Party at the moment. It is the party of Trump. It very much is and has been for the last, you know, six, seven years now. So for Trump, all of this works well. It works well in terms of publicity. The shots everywhere. You know, we can tell this was like. All very, very like deliberately planned by him—the pose and the mugshots, and everything. And we know in the past that mugshots have been weaponized. You know, we know mugshots have been weaponized for good reasons, right? You know, civil just civil rights activists have used mugshots in the past to, to, to great end. And unfortunately, we might see Donald Trump use this mugshot that was taken yesterday. We might see him use this to mobilize his base, to, to invigorate his base, and to kind of fire up that really white nationalist movement that we saw, um, you know, we saw in the US in, following his election in twenty sixteen.
0: I agree with that. And I mean, Donald Trump is going to be very um, adept at taking advantage of it politically, isn't he? And in terms of the American legal system, I've been trying to get on top of this, it does seem incredibly complicated. So this Georgia case, because it refers to that phone call and sort of other further alleged conspiracies to overturn election, that's a, a case which will be heard in a state court. Um, that's relevant because it means that Donald Trump, were he to become president, wouldn't be able to pardon himself. So there are other federal charges. So there's some federal charges, um, which also um, involve, I think, conspiracy more sort of related to um, the Capitol riots, but also, I think, conspiracy in terms of trying to overturn the results. So there's all of these different issues coming up in all of these different trials. And the federal ones, um, if they aren't complete by the time Donald Trump is elected, were he to get elected president, then he can basically just instruct the Justice Department to stop pursuing the case and then it would collapse. Um, So that would be one way to get off. If he got found guilty of one of those federal charges and then got elected, he could presumably pardon himself from jail, although that might go um, to the Supreme Court because it's never happened before. Um, And it's also the case with those state charges that if he were to get found guilty in one of those state charges and end up sort of in prison, some of these might just get a fine by the way, but if he were to end up um, in jail, um, then he, even if he wins the election, wouldn't have the power to pardon himself. Obviously, he doesn't control the justice departments in those states, but you probably would have a standoff. It would go to the Supreme Court as to whether or not the constitution should allow a sitting president to be jailed by a state. Obviously, a president has been elected to federal government. So would a state government be able to stop them sitting in the White House? The common thread with all of these disputes is it seems it would go right up to the Supreme Court. As we know, Trump was very lucky um, in getting to nominate free people to the Supreme Court. Exceptional luck for a single-term president up to now, of course. I mean, he might be getting a, a second term. We will be discussing that in one moment. First, though, numerous lines of merchandise featuring that Trump mugshot have now been launched. But also launched this week was the Republican primary. Eight right wing candidates traded blows with each other in the first presidential primary debate hosted by Fox News. But the man far and away ahead in the polls didn't turn up. He instead spoke to Tucker Carlson, where he explained his absence.
2: You see, the polls have come out, and I'm leading by 50 and 60 points. And, you know, some of them are at one and zero and uh, two. And I'm saying, do I sit there for an hour or two hours, whatever it's going to be, and uh, get harassed by people that shouldn't even be running for president? Should I be doing that? Uh, and a network that isn't particularly friendly to me, frankly. You know, they uh, they were backing Ronda sanctimonious like crazy, and now they've given up on him. I mean, he's it's a lost cause. It reminded me very much of 2016. You know, in 2016, I went through the same stuff and had to fight them all the way. And then they became very friendly after I won or just about when I was winning. But I just felt it would be uh, more appropriate not to do the debate. I don't think it's uh, right to do it. Uh, If you're leading by 50, 60, I have one problem leading by 70 points. And I'm saying, why am I doing it? And I'm going to have eight people, ten people, whoever made the debate. I don't know how many it is, but I'm going to have all these people screaming at me, shouting questions at me all of which I love answering, I love doing, but it doesn't make sense to do them. So uh, I've taken a pass.
0: So he took a pass, of course, though. um, His presence still loomed large over the debate, um, especially in moments like this.
2: If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. (laughs) Just hold on. So, just to be clear, Governor Christie, you were kind of late to the game there, but no,
3: you raised I, I, your I hand. No, I'm doing this. Look, <laughs> look, I'm doing this. Not and I know this. you didn't. Whoa, whoa. No.
1: What's the. Look, here's the bottom line. Someone's got to stop normalizing this conduct,
3: okay? Now, and now whether or not, whether or not, you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong. The conduct is beneath
1: the office of President of the United States.
3: And and, you know,
1: this is the great thing about this country. Booing is allowed, but it doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change the truth.
4: Mr. Ramaswani, you raise your hand supporting... I'd like to get in and respond. Let's just speak the truth, okay? President Trump, I believe, was the best president of the 21st century. It's a fact. And Chris Christie, honest to God, your claim that Donald Trump is motivated by vengeance and grievance would be a lot more credible if your entire campaign were not based on vengeance and grievance against one man. And if people... A bunch of people blindly bashing Donald Trump without an iota of vision for this country. They could just change the channel to MSNBC right now. But I'm not running for president of MSNBC. I am running for president of the United States. We're skating on thin ice, and we cannot set a precedent where the party in power uses police force to indict its political opponents. It is wrong. We have to end the weaponization of justice in this country.
0: That was former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who was attacking Donald Trump and biotech millionaire Vivek Ramaswamy defending him. I mean, it was Ramaswamy who had by far and away the best night, which is worrying as he is really, really right wing.
4: Let us be honest as Republicans. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for. So I can say this. The climate change agenda is a hoax. hoax. The climate change agenda is a hoax. (laughs) And we have to declare
5: independence for it.
0: So that is—I mean—that was for me the most worrying moment of the debate. Right, climate change is a hoax. Now he has become—you know—the polls showed, and sort of the, the focus groups that the various channels were doing showed that Vivek Ramaswamy was considered by people who watched um, that debate who have won it. Um, his sort of public stature has has dramatically increased, basically because he looks a lot more confident and sort of articulate than anyone else on the stage. Politics, as I say, very very right right wing. Of course, winning that debate doesn't mean you're going to be the presidential candidate because, I mean pretty you know it's pretty certain that that's going to be donald trump not necessarily to win the general election but to become the republican candidate and so i think in that sense it seems to me that vivek ramaswamy you know refusing to criticize donald trump really really defending him to the hill it seems to me that this is him auditioning for uh nomination as trump's vice president and i think if you had donald trump as president vivek ramaswamy as vice president that could be pretty risky, right? Because one of the things that was sort of the saving grace of the Trump presidency was he was too much of an idiot to get anything done, like very low concentration span. If you have someone who is just as right-wing, if not more right-wing, but also comes across as reasonably competent, that could be a pretty you know, dangerous combination. Obviously, before Donald Trump and Mike Pence, Mike Pence didn't seem to do very much You know, he obviously didn't stand up to Donald Trump until that very last moment when Trump tried to overturn the election. But he also wasn't there sort of helping him pursue his agenda. If this guy does that, it could be pretty dangerous. Um, Mike, what do you make of it? Are you worried about this guy?
1: Yeah, very much so. He seems to like know the playbook and the Republican playbook at the moment is very much, you should not speak ill of Donald Trump. And I think he realizes this and knows that that's the game. He needs to keep Trump on side. And there is this kind of like, He's one of those you can see the, the average voters or some average voters being like, "Oh, this guy sounds competent because he does speak a good game. He's quite articulate. He, you know, performs well in these debates." And yeah, if you if you align Donald Trump with a kind of competent right wing politician, you can actually get stuff done. But you're in a, a dangerous place where kind of Trump's ideas uh, are lined up with this kind of competent, you know, number two. And and yeah, that's a recipe for disaster in my view. But I, I guess. The bigger problem for me is just how big of a, a grip Donald Trump has in the Republican Party. I said a few years ago, the Republican Party have become an anti-democratic force, and I think the, the vice-like grip Donald Trump has on that party and the kind of dominance he has over that party suggests to me that you know that that anti-democratic force the Republican Party has become. There's going to be no signs of that you know reversing in any way. And actually, when it comes to you know voting in an election for, for U.S. voters. And yes, the Democrats have their own issues, let's be absolutely clear about this. But there is a clear choice here between, you know, a party of democracy and a party that is, at this current moment in time, an anti-democratic force. Yeah,
0: I mean, the, the other thing I suppose Vivek Ramaswamy could bring to Trump is, is a focus on actual issues. Like I've I've said this a few times on this show. You know, I I don't think those attacks on Trump about Russia or about democracy are necessarily effective on their own terms. I don't think the fact that Trump is being tried in Georgia... Is going to actually swing that many votes. I don't think there are many people who would vote for him anyway and aren't because they think, oh, I can't possibly vote for him because he's under investigation in Georgia, right? I I don't think people think that. I think the danger for Trump, you know, and the hope for us, for the rest of the world, right, is that what these trials do is they distract Donald Trump from talking about any of the issues where he actually did connect with the American public in 2016. So he's talking about deindustrialization, being very racist when it came to immigration, which obviously does have a broad appeal um, in certain quarters of the United States. So talking about issues instead of just himself. Ever since, especially ever since the 2020 election, all Donald Trump has been able to talk about is a stolen election and himself, which people in America care a lot less about for obvious reasons, right? So if he's tied up just talking about his own trial over the next year, I think that would be bad for his electoral chances because Biden can go and talk about stuff that people actually care about. But if you've got this sort of, Vice President candidate who one can sort of suck up and absorb energy, um, as this Vivek guy seems to be able to do, and you know be very ideologically aligned with Trump and talk about issues in a way that you know people somewhat connect to. That to me seems very dangerous, and I imagine the Democrats are incredibly worried. And to be frank, I mean we probably all should because if Donald Trump gets reelected with someone who thinks climate change is a hoax as his vice president, I mean it's not looking good. Um, I'm feeling fairly worried um someone else who's presumably worried is robert with a super chat i am american and corrupt politics yields corrupt politicians um yeah there's a lot to that right if you don't have funding reform if you don't have any kind of democratization of your media i think you know the big story here is fox news has so much to answer for and when it comes to the state of the republican party and therefore american politics next story why was hs2 set to cost britain 100 billion pounds It's a good question, not just because it's an enormous amount of money, but because it didn't need to be this way. To take just one comparison, phase one of HS2 is costing Britain £396 million for each mile of track. In France, the cost for a similar high-speed line was just £46 million per mile, just over a tenth of the UK figure. And a new piece in the Financial Times suggests this isn't just a problem which applies to HS2. Their data editor, John Byrne Murdoch, says this averaged over a dozen recent major rail projects and adjusted for inflation. British schemes cost £262 million per mile, compared with £145 million per mile for Japan's bullet train network, which is obviously faster than Britain's scheme, £92 million in Sweden, £74 million in Italy, £42 million in France, and £34 million in Germany. And it's not just a problem with high-speed rail. New tram lines and metro lines cost more in Britain than other European countries. And this is one reason why we have far less of them. This chart shows the percentage of cities in selected countries that have trams, metros, or urban light rail. In Denmark, they all do. In Germany, 88% do. And in France, 80% have them. But way down at the bottom, you can see the UK, where less than 20% of cities are serviced by trams, metros, or urban light rail notably it's leeds which is the biggest city in europe without a mass transit system so what's to blame for this well john burn murdoch gives away his argument in the headline to his piece the nimby tax on britain and america local objections and protracted reviews mean new infrastructure projects cost far more in the uk and us than elsewhere." where So Murdoch is blaming NIMBYs. NIMBY um, stands for not in my backyard. And they're the people that write in objections to planning applications because they don't want their view ruined or they think too many people already live near them. Now, of course, some people who object to planning applications will want to protect the environment. But the NIMBY is sort of the pejorative word for it. Is this really, though, the main problem when it comes to building infrastructure in Britain? I asked Sam Dimitriou, who is head of policy at Remake Britain. They're a think tank which is heavily referenced in that piece by John Byrne Murdoch.
5: There are multiple stories and I think there's elements of truth in all of them. And I think you've got the sort of libertarian sort of yimby story, which is the people who make it really easy to object and create lots of red tape and bureaucracy uh, have added costs. So the the study that... uh, which I think is really persuasive evidence, looks at the US highway, interstate highway system. And over time, you've seen a growth of NIMBY power in the US since about the late 60s, early 70s. And over time, roads become wigglier. They've got, uh, they're more likely to have cuttings, so they're lower into ground, or they might be on bridges or anything basically to avoid potential disputes. Uh, now, some of those improvements are good and, you know, probably should have been happening earlier. But a lot of them probably aren't necessary and have added to costs quite significantly. And you can look at the planning process uh, and the most sort of persuasive evidence on that front in the UK is the lower Thames crossing, Right. This is a project to sort of connect Kent and Essex uh, and relieve the sort of extreme congestion you see at the Dartford uh, crossing. And there, what you've you've got is a planning application that costs £267 million to put together. It's probably going to cost more than that once it's fully completed. And that that planning process isn't just heavily bureaucratic, but it also leads to costs. Uh, It's not just doing the paperwork itself the planning process, it's how it affects the type of project that goes ahead. So one way to think about it is, would would we have designed the Lower Thames Crossing in the way we are designing it in that exact way if it wasn't for the multiple rounds of consultation? Now we know for a fact we don't, because there's a website on National Hires where it shows all the changes they've made in response to consultation, where where the tunnel starts is, is in a different place. And a lot of these changes will have added costs. Not all of the changes add cost, but a lot of them will have. Um, and we have to decide whether that we're getting a good deal for, for that. Uh, but as I said, that is one story, and I think that's a really important story, and I think it's true and needs to be tackled. But then you have other stories. So you could call this more the the sort of state capacity argument. Um, Essentially, uh, with with infrastructure, there's always going to be a large amount of outsourcing. You know, governments typically don't have large construction wings that are trading in multiple countries. So as a result, you need people in the centre of government able to scrutinise uh, engineering changes, uh, scrutinised project designs, and getting that contracting right is really tricky. Uh, and we seem to do a lot worse. So one, one of the issues is that we rely a lot on consultancies because expertise doesn't really get accumulated in the civil service. So imagine you're working in the department for transport, you're really interested in bus data, you're really good at doing research into bus data and doing data projects. One of the problems is if you want to pay rise, You either have to leave for the private sector or you have to specialise in something completely different in another wing of the civil service. If you're in a big consultancy and they've seen a lot of opportunity for big data projects involving buses, you'll probably specialise in that and you might even become even more specialised in that. So those kinds of expertise can sort of develop in the private sector. But the way we've set up our civil service, unlike some countries, That doesn't really develop here. So I think that is another big driver. And then a third big driver is that sometimes when we build things, we're we're much too afraid to sort of copy what works elsewhere. We do a lot of world firsts. uh, And we have uh, tube stations and train stations. Some of them aren't that attractive, but a lot of them have been picked out, singled out by a specific architect. They're kind of uh, trophies. Uh, to show off, right? So you look at the Crossrail stations or the Jubilee Line stations; they're really spectacular. But what Madrid did and how they built their tram system, uh, tube system, sorry, so cheaply was that they used the same design over and over again. They did everything as standardised as possible, and, and I think we can learn from that because, you know, it's better to have a working train station or a working underground underground line than a really really beautiful station and if that's the difference then I, I would favor more transport over prettier transport.
0: It's interesting the way you sort of put out those, those three different explanations and I suppose for me what seems significant here is the types of country where it's expensive and the types of country where it's cheap and so what John Byrne Murdoch's article and what your sort of reporting suggests as well is that it's especially expensive in the UK and the United States, and it's quite cheap in continental Europe. Now, I suppose the YIMBY argument, so yes, in my backyard, and I am fairly sympathetic to lots of the YIMBY arguments, is that there is something particular about the UK and the United States, which means that it's easier for citizens to block projects or to require that projects be sent back to review and changed, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But you'd need to explain why that's more the case in the UK or, or the US. And I suppose the state capacity one seems more obvious to me, because it's, it's clear how Germany, France, the Nordic countries would have more state capacity because they have these huge nationalised companies. You know, their, their rail system is nationalised. Um, I'm not sure precisely, you know, how much involvement Renfe, so the the nationalised um, train operator in Spain, has in the construction of high speed rail. But I would imagine there's a lot of expertise sort of concentrated in those big nationalised companies. So do you think this could be, you know, equally that neoliberalism in the United States and and the United Kingdom has meant that state projects are just more expensive because we're not very good at them?
5: I wouldn't frame it as sort of a in those kind of political ideal, ideological terms. Rather, you could put, perhaps say that the UK sort of the way its legal system is set up, and the way the US and Canada's legal system is set up, it sort of pushes us down certain processes. So, uh, in, fr- in, in in some of the continental Europe, it'll be much more likely to be an administrative appeal rather than a judicial review, and that can shift the balance of power. Um, and you can have you can still have quite different systems, but through quirks of politics, also nimby power can, can be can be higher. So I'm thinking, you know, the U.S. has a zoning system in pretty much all of its states. We have a uh, much more of a discretionary planning system. But you see us actually coming to quite similar examples, and it might be you know that you know something like first past the post causes this. Um, so I think that's something worth exploring in terms of the the nationalised side and sort of hollowing out. I think we might have hollowed out the wrong things. So I think everyone agrees that, you know, the the company doing the tunnelling probably shouldn't be a state company because there'll be a limit in terms of the projects they can do. They'll be idle a lot of the time and you want them going around the world and getting those expertise. But I think, um, you know, we have a lot of civil servants working on HS2, for instance. But the type of civil servants and the type of expertise we try to cultivate seems to be fundamentally different. So, you know, you'll have lots of humanities graduates working on HS2 scrutinising contracts. If you were to go somewhere like Italy, which actually does really, really well on a lot of these uh, comparisons, they'll have a much more specialist team of engineers who can sit within local government as well. So another potential explanation is that a lot of that expertise doesn't exist at a local level; it only exists at a national level. Uh, so, so I think I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't sort of pin it all on neoliberalism or socialism Because again, Japan, for instance, they do, they do things well, but they have a, a, probably a much more privatized rail system than us. And you know, we've done things in the past where you know construction of railways was done in, through the private sector rather than through public sector. And again, on that. Um, the the way the models work were very different. So I I don't think you can just sort of pin it down on an ideological shift, but I do think there is a sort of argument where we might have outsourced the wrong things. We should probably have been preserving some of that expertise in the centre and not outsourcing that to consultancies, but that's very hard to defend politically, right? Why do we have a team of engineers working in the civil service if they're not actually doing engineering and they're only called on every now and then? you can sort of see how political arguments can, can knock that down. Um, so, so it, you know, there needs to be a real constituency in favour of this.
0: Now, I enjoyed that conversation. I really like this, this sort of topic. I sort of talk about it quite a lot on the show. I suppose it's, I mean, it's, uh, one way of looking at it is like varieties of capitalism. So in the UK, in the United States, we have sort of this liberal model of capitalism. You have lots of very competitive firms. We're good at some things, so sort of innovation, um, obviously, you know, as Mariana Matsukato sort of says, it involves lots of investment from the state. You can still have sort of industrial policy, but we tend to be better at sort of radical innovation. So sort of new innovations that sort of come from nowhere. Countries like Japan, Germany, France, they're much better um, at sort of these projects which don't necessarily sort of come up with something brand new, but which are just effective and cheaper. And that's why they have really good infrastructure but sort of fewer big tech companies. And we have all the big tech companies, but terrible infrastructure. I think there is something to that. Hopefully we can find a way to have both. I mean, I suppose I would actually prefer some decent infrastructure to some tech companies that don't pay any tax. What should you do if you're a government minister and you're asked a question you don't want to answer? Well, often a politician will try and subtly change the subject and a bid to run down the clock. But Energy Minister Andrew Bowie has taken a different tack. He simply asked the host, to change their questions.
3: The standing charge has risen for gas and electricity. Can you explain to people why that is the right way to go, if you believe it so? Well,
6: I mean, that's obviously a matter for Ofgem. Uh, I think what what we should be focusing on right now. Because you're the government
3: in charge. What do you think about the standing charge rising? Look,
6: I think the focus today should be on the fact that the price of energy is falling, that people's uh, average energy bills okay. are coming down. But I, That's my job is to ask questions.
3: Thing. My job is to ask questions on behalf of our viewers and to try to elicit an answer. And mm-hmm. I know many people are confused and upset about the standing charge as it is paying for energy. When some people just simply turn the meters off, they turn the supply off because they can't afford to pay. But yet they have to pay this fixed charge for infrastructure. The standing charges for gas and electricity have gone up. So I would like to ask you on behalf of those viewers who are struggling, why, whether or not you think it is right that these standing charges have risen. Look, I
6: think what we need to focus on today is the fact that people's average energy bills are coming down. People will be paying less now than they have been for their energy bills overall. That's an incredibly positive thing. The standing charge, as it is, is a matter of for Ofgem. It's something that the government will be discussing. And indeed, the future of energy markets in the United Kingdom is something that we are reviewing. There's a call for evidence ongoing right now. But today is a positive day. The price cap has come down. And I think that's what we should be focusing on. People paying less for their energy bill than they have been. For quite a considerable period of time,
3: which will be offset by the rising the standing charge.
6: No, it will be offset. Yes, by it the will because the standing, standing charge, charge average, is going no, up. Nugget, no, Naga, energy bills were coming down on average uh, uh, by about 580 pounds from its peak. That is in no way going to be offset by this very slight rise in the standing charge.
0: So, as you'll see, for some people, it will be offset by that standing charge first, though. I mean, what was that? This is a positive news day. You should ask me questions about the positive stories, please. Don't ask me the negative ones. You don't actually get to make those rules if you're a politician. Now, to be honest, I'm very you know, suspicious of the, the, the close relationships between the mainstream media and top politicians. So I'm sure sometimes, you know, there's a nudge, nudge, wink, wink agreement, which is to say, you know, if you don't ask me nice, n- nice enough questions, I'm not going to come back on your show. But you don't normally see it done live on air. This is a positive news day. Ask me a question about positive news. Very, very transparent. I don't think it worked. I don't think it persuaded many people. Um, Let's, though, take a look at the issue at hand. What is um, the change that they were discussing? And this is the write-up from the BBC. An annual energy bill for a household using a typical amount of gas and electricity will fall to £1,923 in October under regulator Ofgem's new price cap. Bills will be £151 lower than current rates and £577 down on last winter. But many people will see little difference in what they pay despite the fall because some government support has been withdrawn as well as the withdrawn government support, households are also going to be hit by an increase in the gas and electricity standing charge. That's the flat fee all users pay to maintain national infrastructure. And because it's a flat fee, it means people who are tight for cash can't limit their energy use to bring it down. Of course, if you're struggling to pay your energy bill, you could use less energy. When it comes to this flat charge, this standing fee, you have to pay it however much gas or electricity you use. And the result, according to the Resolution Foundation, is this. Any family with an energy consumption less than four-fifths of the average will see higher bills this winter than last, a situation that applies to around one in three or 35% of households in England and close to half or 47% of those in the lowest income decile. For some, these extra costs will be substantial. 13% of households, that's 2.7 million families, face energy bills rising by more than £100 this winter, a figure that rises to one in four, 24%. For the poorest households, So this is a pretty, you know, this is not a good situation, right? You've got 47% of those in the lowest income diesel are going to be paying more this winter than they paid last winter. Now that probably means that 53% are going to be paying less, unless, you know, there's a number of people who are paying exactly the same amount, but this isn't exactly fantastic news for lots of people in the country. Yet this is the situation which Andrew Bowie called a positive day. And that's something he was called out on. This was an interview he did with Good Morning Britain. Andrew Bowie, are, are, are you seriously suggesting to our viewers this morning who have been texting us in their droves that they are worried about the winter, this news this morning doesn't reassure them,
6: their standard charges are going to go high, the bills are still high? You Are you seriously telling them it's a positive day? It, it, it's a positive day in that energy bills are but coming they're telling down, you it's down, down not. from £580... They're t- they're t- pounds at its peak. Uh, And as I said, half of everybody's energy bills in this country, half of everybody's bill in this country was paid by the government last year. But that that was last year. What about about this year? As I said, that was £40 billion uh, well spent. And the most vulnerable in this country, across society, will always be supported as they are uh, right now.
5: Mr Bowie, it just seems that you've, I'm saying this in a polite way, that you've got deaf ears
0: here. People, I can read you all the messages. People, people who vote for you, people who put you in government, Are saying you're not right on this, I'm afraid. You're calling it a positive day. They are messaging us. We're not making this up, saying they're still going to struggle. They're asking for help. Your response to them is it's a positive day.
6: Energy prices are moving in the right direction. Inflation is coming down. The economy is getting uh, under control.
0: Inflation is coming down. The economy is under control. You might personally feel poorer than ever, You might be in a miserable situation, but the aggregate statistics say that we are meeting our targets, so get off my back.
1: Mike, will the minister be persuading many viewers at home there? Absolutely not. I think, you know toys will be absolutely raging with him based on those media performances because they were really really poor media p- appearances both of them like the second one where he's trying to convincingly say things are fine it's like the meme of, of the the guy in the, in the building which is burning and he's saying this is fine it's just so unconvincing i just think that you know the government aren't doing enough to support you know families especially low-income families during this kind of energy bill crisis. They're also not setting us up for the future when it comes to transitioning to clean energy. So, you know, the Tories can't convince us they're in control of things because they simply aren't in control of things. Even in terms of addressing the loopholes in the windfall tax, we aren't doing those things. So the Tories aren't in control here. I think families up and down the country, you know, are under under severe pressure when it comes to bills. And this winter, unfortunately, is going to be tough for so many. And I think I read somewhere that, you know, 6.3 million people in this country could be in fuel poverty. You know, that's not a sign that things are good and this is a positive news story. That's a sign that, you know, millions of people across this country are going to be struggling this winter. So no matter how the Conservatives try to spin this, this is not a good news day. That wasn't a good news day. And, you know, we need more from the Conservative government when it comes to supporting low-income families, when it comes to, you know, helping those who are struggling. We need more from them. And I think a lot of this, just that those media appearances you know, summarize the disdain that some of the Conservatives have for, you know, struggling families, you know, things are better, just go away and leave us alone. We're going to tell you how things are and your experiences, what you're going through doesn't matter. You know, the disdain show to the interviewer on BBC, you know, that, that just shows you these, these politicians ultimately don't have the compassion when it comes to understanding what people are going through in this country and, and finding the, you know, most effective ways of addressing those issues. I think that's a, a real problem because we have politicians in, in positions of power because we, we hope they can address you know, the issues that you know, affect us in this country. But that's clearly not the case with the conservative government and hasn't been the case for the last 13 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I do think those interviews did sort of demonstrate like a real lack of, of compassion, especially sort of this, this constantly saying, no, this is a good news story because aggregate bills are going down. Now, it might be true that aggregate bills are going down, not by much, by the way, they're still higher than they were before um, the Ukraine war, before sort of the inflation we saw after COVID, they're still historically fairly high, but they are gonna be slightly lower than they were last year. But you can't just keep talking about the aggregate if you've got a significant minority of people, and especially the more vulnerable in society, who are gonna be screwed over by this. So if if you're being told, no, there are a significant number of people who are gonna have higher bills this winter than they did last winter, and we all know that last winter was difficult enough. If your answer is, well, on aggregate, they're falling, No, these are real people, right? These are real people. It's not just one or two people. This is a significant minority of people who are disproportionately poor, who are going to have higher bills this winter than last winter because of the change to the standing charge. Now, what the minister was sort of saying elsewhere in the interview that this is down to off-jam, it's nothing to do with the government. Um, But I mean, I think they probably can lean on off-jam. They obviously can come up with some kind of support as well. Um, So the idea that you just sort of say, oh, on the aggregate, it's fine. I mean, it's similar with inflation, right? Rishi Sunak seems to be really annoyed that people aren't you know going out in the street and clapping him because inflation's come down from 10 to 6% still quite high and those prices are still going to remain high right it, it, it's not as if um, when inflation goes down the prices come down no they just they they just increase at a, a lower pace than they were before and until our wages you know the british people's wages catch up with that inflation then we're all still poorer than we were before so the idea is, no, why, why aren't you praising me? Why aren't you thanking me for getting inflation down? Well, the reason people aren't thanking you is because they're still poorer than when you became prime minister, right? So uh, you, you're not going to get thanks, I'm sorry. And it, before you say, oh, well, he, you know, he, he arrived into a difficult situation. What was he supposed to do? Well, he also backed the Conservatives for the 13 years previously when there wasn't an external war which forced them to make Britain poorer. They did that entirely of their own volition. It was a complete act of self-harm, austerity, right? Now, obviously, the government are dealing with a difficult situation. They've made some dodgy decisions to try and take us through it. But there is an external pressure. We have to admit that. You know, they didn't start the war in Ukraine, but they did start austerity. And that has put us in terrible stead for when this external shock came along. And no one is thanking Rishi Sunak for good reason. Oh, the aggregate The aggregate data is actually suggesting it's getting better. It doesn't feel like it's getting better. And that's actually because the aggregate data, which really matters, which is living standards, is going down, right? Living standards have fallen. If inflation is down, but living standards are falling, it doesn't really matter if you've brought inflation down from 10 to 6%. What matters is the money in people's pockets and what it buys them. So if our wage, inflation at 10% would be fine if wages also went up by 10%. Inflation going down to 6% is no good if wages are going up 5%, right? doesn't make any sense. And I mean, I think people are looking at the Conservatives now and just thinking they are so out of touch. They have nothing to do with my life. And that was demonstrated in those interviews. I think so clearly, one of the set of interviews I've seen recently, which most clearly demonstrates how out of touch the Conservative Party are and why I do think, um, whatever we think of Keir Starmer, he's probably going to win the next election. Let's go to our final story on the topic of Keir Starmer. I'm pretty sure that being leader of the Labour Party is not an easy gig but it sure does come with some perks. Well, at least that's if you kiss Starmer. This is a new report in Open Democracy. Starmer has taken more freebies than all Labour leaders since 1997 combined. Wow. Adam Ramsey writes this. While the Labour leader spent his first year and a half in the role under lockdown, he has quickly made up for it, accepting gifts from donors, including multimillionaires, gambling giants, the online shopping app Getir, and the construction giant Mullally & Co. on 28 separate occasions. The gifts include days at the races, hospitality at Chelsea and Tottenham Hotspur matches, an Adele gig, and two separate Coldplay concerts. In total, they are worth nearly thirty thousand pounds and nearly thirty thousand pounds in gifts. Now, the description of sort of some of these gifts is quite remarkable. I do recommend you sort of go and read um, the article that hotel had an infinity pool. Um, sounded rather lovely. These football matches he's been going to, you get to stay in, you know, the the box where you get special drinks, etc. cetera. Um, what's it called? The hospitality box, I suppose. Similar situation at the races. Uh, he got these sort of nice boxes that one gets, um, I suppose, if, if a company wants to give you favors. Now, it does seem like they want to give Keir Starmer some favors. I wonder why. I wonder what they want in return. Um, Ramsey also compares this to former Labour leaders. Um, So he writes this. In his five years as Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn only accepted one such freebie, tickets to Glastonbury, where he spoke on the pyramid stage in 2017. His predecessor, Ed Miliband, only accepted tickets to the London Olympics and Paralympics opening and closing ceremonies and a number of the contests during the Games. Gordon Brown accepted no such gifts during his time as Labour leader and Prime Minister. And he goes on, this is probably the most surprising, while Tony Blair led a jet-setting lifestyle, including accepting summer holidays with the regional president of Tuscany and in Cliff Richard's holiday home in the Caribbean, he accepted fewer gifts than Starmer in his whole time as prime minister and usually donated the value of any such freebie to a relevant charity. Um, so yeah, this is quite remarkable. Keir Starmer, you know, he, he's, I thought he was supposed to be a very upstanding person, very upstanding forensic, very against the sort of, anti-public spirit that boris johnson showed he is the kind of guy who dots the i's and crosses the t's yet if you offer him you know a nice stay in a hotel some decent seats at a chelsea arsenal match or tickets to coldplay on two separate occasions you know i can imagine you know you, you sort of say well i probably probably shouldn't accept these tickets but i haven't you know i do really like coldplay i want to see them right maybe forgivable for the first coldplay concert but the second coldplay concert just say no just say no Mike, what do you make of this? Kia Starmer sort of acting like a pound shop Instagram influencer.
1: What any, whatever anyone offers him, he takes it. Even if he's already seen Coldplay this year. It's like he's just left Love Island and has been offered all these <laughs> gifts from these companies who are trying to like tie him up. Like, oh, Kia, please, please, we would love you to sign for us. It's just like, he's just like, yeah, I love it. It's like a kid in a toy shop. You know, he's just living the time of his life. And it's just, I think a lot of this kind of jokes aside does reveal a lot about where Kia Starmer's, heart lies. And that is, you know, defending the interests of businesses. And all of this comes in the context of Kia Starmer rolling back or potentially rolling back on workers' rights. So all of this, you know, going to Coldplay, having a time of his life at Chelsea and Tottenham games and hotels and all of this jazz, you know, while rolling back on commitments that are going to, you know, help those who are suffering in this country, help those, you know, on low income in this country, you give them more protections, give them more rights it does feel a bit nasty and 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 again Michael you kind of alluded to it in your point about you, Keir Starmer has framed himself and has been framed by others as a serious politician he would never get involved in you know all the nonsense Roy Johnson has but yeah, he's been to two Coldplay concerts and is you know having time. he's literally living like a, a, an Instagram influencer at the moment so you know it says a lot about where Keir Starmer's interests interest lie at the moment and, and and what a premiership a Keir Starmer premiership might look like And I I
0: suppose there are two sort of ways of interpreting this. So one is sort of like Keir Starmer thinks, well, you know, there could be reputational risks of me accepting these gifts, but, you know, I do really want to see Coldplay or, you know, I I imagine the way people phrase this is, you know, like my wife really wants to see Coldplay. So it would be bad for the relationship if I were to turn them down. I'm sure people, you know, try and find some more notable reason for taking these. So you can imagine sort of Keir Starmer saying, or thinking in his head, well, I probably shouldn't, but I will for this reason. The other option, though, which I think is potentially more likely, is he thinks it's actively good for him to be accepting these kind of things. Because what it does is it gives an indication to the business world and to the rich and powerful that time is not actually that fussed about these kind of things. He is willing to go along with the game and the game, how it's supposed to work, is that business scratch politicians' backs and politicians scratch the backs of business armor is saying, "No, no, I'm not one of these moral moralistic people like Jeremy Corbyn, who said that he didn't want consultancy firms um, seconding their staff into the leader's office or into the civil service. I'm actually very open to this kind of thing. I'm quite morally loose, you know. What's wrong with a business giving me some some free tickets to a fancy racing match where I get champagne on tap? That's my kind of vibe. I'm someone you can get along with. I'm someone you can trust. I'm like you, right? Because." The rich and powerful, they do each other a lot of favors. You know, like this is very frustrating with rich people. They often don't don't buy that much. They can be quite tight with their money, right? Because they expect everything sort of as a favor. Oh, I'm a rich and powerful person. Can you give me this for free? And that's sort of how they move around the world. And Starmer seems to be saying, oh, that's how I want to move around the world as well. Although to be honest, I mean, maybe he's been doing this a while. He, He has had some significant positions for a while. I don't know if you're allowed to accept these kind of things as director of public prosecution, Um, maybe they have tighter rules than they do with um, party leaders. Although, to be honest, a prospective prime minister should probably have tighter rules than a director of public prosecutions. You know, it's a more powerful job. Um, Mike, is there anything, you're you're leader of the Labour Party, you sort of have a position which is that you shouldn't accept business gifts because it might look dodgy or it might compromise you in some way. What might you say? You know, I can't say no to that.
1: It'd probably be tickets to Liverpool game, you know, if So it's so, because they're so hard to get at the moment. i probably get to about four or five games. If someone offered me, like, tickets in, like, a comfortable box, I'd be like, do you know what? I might just have to go. But <laughs> it's just to of an excuse ways. Where... I, I think what you would do is you sort of
0: say oh, it's not for me, it's just my brother. He loves Liverpool so much. If I were to turn it down, he would hate me forever. And they're like, well, why did you go to?" Well, I had to chaperone him there, you know. I was just taking my brother or my wife or my husband, who's a real fan, you know, I was doing it for the family. Would you, would you, do you think you could sort of style it out like that? Or would you just say, no, I love Liverpool so much, I'm taking those tickets, and I'm hoping that the British
1: public sort of still relate to me because they recognize a football fan when they see one. It depends. So you could do the Kier Starmer thing, which he's done, which is like, I love Arsenal, I love football. Like, whenever there's a f- big football game going on, he makes sure he tweets about it and like, I'm a normal person, guys, I promise you, I like sports. you know? Yes, look at me in a pub with pints, having time of my life watching football. So like... You either go down that route or you go down the route of making up like a really black excuse like my mate's uncle's brother's cousin really wants to go to the game with me and we're really close. So I'm going to take him along to the game and just be there with him. You know, I'm going for him, not for myself. So one of those two camps, I lean more towards the kind of uncle's brother's cousin camp, where, which is like a more of a black route. But if you're a politician, you kind of have to blag a bit, don't you? So. <laughs> Fun comment, I
0: like him from shiny warm. I have to confess to playing in my place on the piano when I need to lower my mood. <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, I'm sure Keith Starmer would love that. Um, thank you, Mike, for joining me tonight. It's been a pleasure as always. Always a pleasure, Michael. And um, Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Have a fantastic weekend. We're actually, I'm going to be taking the bank holiday off um, because I think it's the best bank holiday of the year. Um, so carnival is on. Monday and um, there is not going to be a Navarra Live. Tuesday there will be. Um, So come back at Tuesday or on Tuesday, sorry, at 6 p.m. For now. You've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to com slash support.